Well, good morning. It is uh, good to be with you this morning. I have to confess, I'm going to go off script. I was thinking this morning of how well this works, that you're able to uh, attend in person, you're able to attend online. Uh, Those of you who are online right now, certainly welcome. It is interesting. You can see me, I cannot see you. Furthermore, you can hear me and I cannot hear you. And I can't help but think what a beautiful picture of Hebrews chapter 11 of what faith is. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 begins, and this has nothing to do with our lesson whatsoever, but I can't help but think that the writer of Hebrews writes that faith is being certain of what we hope for and sure of what we do not see. Obviously, I've had the privilege of speaking here in the past. I've seen this room full of chairs and full of people. Many of you who are online have uh, uh, been here, and, and we've enjoyed our uh, company together and so on. And, and so I know what it's like when you're here in front of me, and now I can't see you. And that's very much how the Word of God works. He acts, and he shows us his action, and then he says... Will you trust me in your own situation? Uh, The Bible is God revealing to us that which we believe. And then he says, will you trust me in your situation, in your circumstances, in the things that you can't? And so faith is not blind. And me teaching here right now, I remember teaching with this room full of people. Many of you who are online, I remember seeing you and hoped we can enjoy that again sometime. But by faith, I can trust that what I remember from the past is true right now, even though I can't see you, even though I can't hear you. And obviously, I'm grateful for Dave Francis and the technology and all those involved in making this work and glad that you can do that. But it is a perfect illustration of faith. Our faith is not blind. That is not Christian faith. Christian faith is full of content, that is God's word, And then we're asked, in light of God's word, can we live it out in our own context, in our own situation? And this is kind of a little illustration of that, that our faith is relying on what we already know. I know people are online. I know people are watching and listening. I know many of you, and and yet I can't see you, and I can't hear you. And by faith, I trust that you're there, and even if you're not, I'll never know. (laughs) But anyway... Uh, It is a privilege to be here with you and to look at God's word with you. Um, Again, in the richness of God's word, he chose to reveal his son as this crowning climax of the story of scripture uh, with the coming of Christ in the Christmas story. And undoubtedly, you're familiar with the fact that we have really four portraits of Christ given to us in the New Testament, a portrait painted by Matthew, one by Mark, one by Luke, and one by John. We call them the Gospels. The word gospel means good news. And so the good news, the coming of Christ, the gospel, isn't merely painted once for us. It isn't told to us just once, but it's told to us by, if you will, four different artists painting four different, four different portraits of Christ from their own viewpoint, from their own vantage point, and for their own particular audiences. And, and this isn't that they go out on whims. All four are, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit to say precisely what God has wanted to reveal. Uh, through them ultimately to us, to all of us in his written word. And so when it comes to the Christmas story, we tend to think of the portrait 
painted by Matthew and by Luke. Luke is probably the most uh, read when it comes to the Christmas story. He gives us the most detail. Luke chapter 1, if you'll remember with me, uh, is the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth and the unique experience that Zachariah has in being chosen to go to the temple. Zachariah was a, it was a priest. There would have been roughly about 18,000 priests in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. By lot, they were chosen. Each priestly group, they were divided into groups, would be chosen uh, to go into the temple and to go to the holy place, not the holy of holies. Okay, the holy of holies—that's where the uh, where the um, high priest would go once a year. But a temple priest would get to go to the holy place, which is the room you walk through to enter the holy of holies. And in there, they would clean out the lampstands and they would reset the incense to burn that. And so, if you got chosen, if it would happen one time in your life. You would never get chosen again. And so by lot, according to what God had, had uh, designed, the lot fell to Zechariah. And of course, when we read the, the story, we realize that it was by God's design, right? God was controlling that. That would be the time Zechariah would come. An angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah in his one opportunity to go into the holy place in the temple uh, as he's uh, making the appropriate preparations for burning the incense. And that angel says, you and your wife, who have never been able to conceive, will have a son. And he is going to be the forerunner uh, of the coming Christ. And that will be John. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 2, we know well, is the birth of Christ. Mary and Joseph making their way to Bethlehem. Uh, the issues there with the inn. And ultimately, Jesus being born and wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. Uh, really, Luke is painting the picture from Mary's perspective. And I say that because Matthew is really painting the Christmas story story from Joseph's perspective. Uh, in Matthew, we get the genealogy. That is the first thing we do is we connect Jesus back to Abraham and, and then ultimately through David. And so Matthew's key starting point is Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Abraham is the father uh, of the Jews, or the father of the Israelites. And so uh, Jesus connects back directly to Abraham and also to the, the primary king, the dominant king, King David, the one who would have uh, a reign that would not end uh, that Jesus' lineage goes through David. And so Matthew starts there and really tells the story much more from Joseph's perspective and includes, well, Luke includes shepherds. Uh, uh, Matthew includes the wise men who would come sometime later after the birth and visit and uh, worship the king in uh, the newborn king in that way. I say all that because I'm assuming you know that, and I'm assuming in this Christmas season you'll continue to revisit Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and Luke chapter 2. I'd encourage you to do that. What I'd like to do, though, is, is deviate slightly from the story that's recorded in Matthew and Luke, uh, and, and I should just maybe mention that of our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the most amount of information together. We call them the synoptic Gospels. There are four Gospels. There are three synoptic Gospels, and the word synoptic is just a play on an old Greek word uh, that is, is able to be seen together. That is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are painting uh, from a very similar vantage point, are painting the story of Jesus. And so they are part of the synoptic Gospels, and you're familiar with that. There's parables that you can read in one and then, and then find the corresponding passage in another one of the synoptic Gospels and read it there as well. But John is different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of all telling Jesus' story from the ground up. 
He went to, uh, an angel came and visited Mary in Nazareth, and you're going to have a baby, and you're going to need, because of taxation, you're going to need to travel with your sort of fiancé, Joseph, to to Bethlehem. And and then when you get there, there's no room in the inn, and and, and then wrap him in a manger, and so on. He's telling from the bottom up. John tells the story, if you will, from the top down. So, so we have three gospel writers kind of giving the details from the bottom up as we would sort of be used to receiving information. And then John is going to give us sort of this from the top down, almost like a theological perspective on the details of what's going on. So I am making a huge assumption this morning. I don't actually think it's that huge, but I'm, assu- I'm, assuming, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you know the Christmas story from Matthew and from Luke. I'm assuming that you'll continue to read it and revisit it. We'll sing of many of those words in our Christmas carols. And so in light of knowing that, I want to look at Christmas from the Gospel of John. That is, I want to complement as best I can this morning what you already know, the details down on earth, from a heavenly perspective of what's going on. And that's how John opens his Gospel. And so if you have your Bibles, make your way to uh, the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Again, in an effort to understand Christmas, the coming of Christ, and probably John, I can say it this way, John will give us just a little bit more of the why Christmas, why did Christ come, a little bit more than we get from the details of Matthew and Luke as to how it happened and, and, and the shepherds and, and the wise men and, and all those details, all of which are true, all of which are important, all of which are fundamental. But uh, I want to look at John and how he gives us some more insight really into Matthew and Luke. John giving us more insight in the Christmas story, really helping us to understand the Matthew narrative and the Luke narrative. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's start with that. The first five verses, undoubtedly, they're probably familiar to you. Uh, It's common for us to look. John is maybe the most studied book in all the Bible. Uh, Beautiful words written by this uh, disciple of Christ, one of the inner three, one of his closest friends, if you will. And he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But you can see he's not talking about Caesar Augustus and taxation and travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem and mangers and shepherds. That's not what he's doing. He's giving us a different perspective and he's starting really from a different place further back. In the beginning was the word. And and when we see those words in the beginning, if you're thinking back to Genesis 1, you're doing exactly what John wanted you to do. That that we think of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1 verse 1, how the Bible opens. And, And so John wants to give us further insight really into that beginning, 
Because the Christmas story, the coming of Christ, the incarnation, has something to do with the very beginning, God creating all things. And so John has in mind, I want to take my readers, John is saying and thinking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I want to take them back to the Genesis 1 narrative to help them reframe and understand a little more detail that Moses, when he wrote Genesis 1, he didn't include everything, and now we're getting further revelation or fuller revelation. Happens multiple times in the New Testament. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this idea of the Word, we're going to know, and I'm going to assume you already know this, by the time we get to verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus, right? The Word is the Son of God. So, I'm assuming you know that, but I like, why call him the Word? What's John doing? Well, John is picking up on a theme that runs through the Old Testament, and I want to kind of highlight that with you, maybe remind you of some of these things, of calling Jesus the Word. And so, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That is ultimately Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God from the very beginning. So, the the first thing is throughout the Old Testament, God will talk about his word doing or accomplishing specific things. And so, I want to give you several of these passages. I'm just going to read them to you. You don't, you're welcome to flip to them with, uh, with me, but I'm not going to sort of wait, wait for that. I'll just read several of them to you so you can get a sense of how God's word is used in the Old Testament. So, first Genesis 1 verse 3, uh, uh, God said, let there be light, and there was light, okay? Over and over in the Genesis 1 creation, God speaks, and it is so. And so, in theology, we call this the effectual word of God. That is, what God says will happen, will happen. And that's very unique to us because I would love it if if what I said should happen would happen, right? But that doesn't work. I, I would come this morning and I would say, no more coronavirus. It's gone. But my word is not effectual, right? That's, in one sense, that's kind of wishful thinking, right? I, I can say it, but it isn't so. But that is completely unlike God's word. When God says it, it is so, and so all the way through, and we could spend all our time this morning in Genesis 1 looking at the creation account, God says it, and it's so. He's going to separate the light from the darkness, and it separates. He's going to divide you know, day and night, and it's going to divide, and he's going to call the, the bright light in the day sun, the, and the, the luster light at night the moon, and, 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 and that's what they are. His word accomplishes his purposes. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord... By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 33 is reflecting on the fact that God literally spoke all things into existence by his word. Okay, and so this is kind of that key phrase, by his word, because John is telling us in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. And the first thing you need to think about is what John is saying is, in the beginning was the word which always accomplishes his purposes, right? It, it always does 
whatever he says it ought to do. Isaiah 55, the prophet Isaiah in verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, one of my favorite verses, especially the snow part, right, just kind of reminds me of home. Nonetheless, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish uh, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word. Okay? So Isaiah is using this imagery, rain comes, it has an effect on the land. Snow comes, it has an effect on where it falls, just like my word. Verse 11, so is my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. It never comes back unheard, and it never comes back so, somehow not accomplishing what God set out to do. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and what I achieve for the purpose which I sent it. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. When I say it, it happens. Just like when it rains, the earth gets wet and things grow and grass is nourished and, and, and flowers bloom and, and, and shrubs and bushes and trees all benefit from the water in the exact same way when I speak it happens. Isaiah 55. So that is one of the themes of this word that John is saying in the beginning was the word. And one of the things we need to think about is what, what he's saying is that the word is Jesus and the word we need to be reminded always accomplishes its purposes, which is already going to start to give us just a little glimpse in the Christmas story. You start to go, man, like, why was there no room in the inn? Oh, simple. God was accomplishing his purposes. Right? I mean, that, that, that's the thing. He sent his son by his word. His son is the word, and his son always accomplishes his purposes. That is, God's word always accomplishes its purposes. And, and so we start to see this whole story is ordained by God for ultimately God's purposes. <clears throat> Listen to this. This is Genesis chapter 15. God is speaking to Abram. Ultimately, will be renamed Abraham. Uh, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. I could have used many, many verses, but all through the Old Testament, God speaks directly to people. That is, his word is personal. He doesn't just make general announcements. Hear ye all people, so and so, such and such. He speaks in this case to Abraham, I'll, I'll, I'll be with you. I'll be your shield. Ultimately, he spoke to Abraham and said, you and your wife, you'll have a child. I'll see to it. I know you think it's too late, but it's not too late. Nothing's impossible with God. He says the same thing to Mary, right? He says, you're going to have a child even though you haven't yet been with a man. Why? Nothing's impossible with God. And so God's word has a personal point to it. That is, it isn't just making general statements. It is personal. God's word is used as personal. God's word is used as effective. Psalm 107, he sent out his word and he healed them and he rescued them from the grave. That is, God's word is used for healing or rescue or what I will call deliverance. It is by God's word that people are delivered, 
right? You remember Moses, and he's leading his people out of Egypt towards the promised land, and the ten plagues have happened, and they're now leaving and fleeing from Egypt, and Pharaoh has changed his mind, and he gets his army, and now they're being chased, and they get to the Red Sea. Yes, Moses is called to raise his stick, but it's God's word that accomplishes what the stick raising. I mean, I could raise a stick. No, no water's going to part. I mean, there's nothing stick raising doesn't part water. But, but, but that's the sign, the physical sign of God parting the water, right? It, Moses didn't part the water. God parted the water. And of course, he delivers them. And we're reminded throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that the Exodus is an act of deliverance that God delivers. And so how does God deliver? By his word. Which again, huh, because Christ is going to come and he's going to, well, he's the word which will deliver us. And so something's going to be accomplished in his life, ultimately in his death, in his conquering of death and resurrection, and 40 days later in his ascension, that he will be the deliverer. Why? That's exactly what God's word does. It delivers. Uh, One more passage, Isaiah 34. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. um, That that, that a phrase that appears over and over through the prophets. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Micah. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This idea that God spoke through his prophets with his word, that is God's word, to bring understanding. Here's what I want. Here's what's about to come. Here are the consequences for your sin. Here is what I would like to do for you if you'll return and repent and and come back to me. And and so God's word is used to bring understanding. That's why he raised up prophets to help the people to understand, here's what's going on today. Your sin is resulting in these circumstances. And and so God's word, uh, amongst many things, is effective. That is, it accomplishes its purposes. It's personal. Uh, it is uh, the means of deliverance, and it ultimately, it brings understanding. All those things are, are example, and, and honestly, we could have spent six Sundays just going through passages to show this. All of those things appear over and over in the Old Testament, and in all parts, in, in the historical books, in the poetic books like Psalms, we've quoted a couple times, in Proverbs. It appears in the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets. And so, there is a lot of background to this word word, word. Right? It's a difficult way to say it, but there's a lot of background. So when John picks up this theme, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the theme is weighty. In the beginning was the word which accomplishes its purposes, which brings deliverance and understanding, which is personal. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, that is this word that is effectual, this word that accomplishes its purposes, all things were made. And so now we get some insight that we didn't have when we first read Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Now we find that God the Father created the heavens and the earth by means of the word which was and is his son, 
right? We, we, we get a little glimpse, not too much, but a little glimpse of what I'll call the Godhead, that is the Father being God, the Son is God, not being mentioned here yet, although John will pick up this theme later in the first chapter, the Holy Spirit is God, and that is the Godhead. And so now we see that God the Father spoke through God the Son, spoke all things into existence. And by the way, Genesis 1 verse 2, what's hovering over the waters of the deep? Spirit. Yeah, and so from the very beginning, we didn't know it, reading Genesis 1. We had the Father speaking through the Son. We got that insight from John chapter 1. As the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep, the whole Godhead is present in the creation act. I would also add that if we had time and could do a careful study, the whole Godhead is always present, uh, present in any act of deliverance. God creates all of him. God saves. And so we're going to get a little glimpse of this as we want to get into uh, sort of the Christmas story and, and John's presentation. And so John doesn't want us to merely start with a pregnancy that began in Nazareth and gets delivered in Bethlehem, although that is all true. God wants to say, well, hold hold on. John wants to say, hold, hold, before we get there, let's not forget Jesus was already part of the very beginning. He was the word that God used to create all things. So he spoke the stars into existence and the sun and the moon and and all the details, the animals and the water and, and, and all that we find in Genesis 1. All things are created through him. And so we get this idea, and now we see in verse 2, he was with God from the beginning. That is, he's always been with God. And so... I mean, I hate to jump around too much, but Isaiah has this amazing prophecy. It's the first time the word appears in all of Scripture, in Isaiah chapter 7. It's a prophetic passage that we always read around Christmas. And, 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 and Isaiah is prophesying, and he says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and they will, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of his reign there will be no end. Ultimately, he will go on to say he will be Emmanuel, the word with us. I, I mean, God with us, right? John chapter 1, verse 2, through him, uh, uh, um, he was with God from the beginning. That is, God's word is with God, and God's word is his son. And that's actually what Isaiah is prophesying, is that God's word will be with us, Emmanuel. The God who is with us. There's lots there, but I want to keep going to just try and follow some of John's thinking here. Through him, verse 3, John chapter 1, verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. That is, he is the maker of all things. He didn't do most of it, and then someone else finished up the things that he didn't get to, right? With, so we get it both ways. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing is made. He is the means by which God makes, by God manufactured. Let's not forget some of the manufacturing that happens in Genesis 1 and 2, right? Man, well, we take dirt and we blow on it, okay? That's man. Woman, we take a rib from man and we fashion it, right? Well, he's the maker. He's the one who does the making. So he can do dirt and breathe life into it. He can do ribs and refashion a woman from it. That's, that's what someone who does the making does. No one does making. 
if it's not him, right? That, that's, that's what's being said here. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, right? Remember the dirt? Right? We're supposed to be thinking of Genesis 1. That's what John wants us to think, right? He breathed into the dirt, life. In him was life, verse 4, and that life, now we're going to change a metaphor that John's going to keep now through the rest of his gospel, that life was the light of all mankind. And so now we're going to get this parallel between life, the one who breathed life into dirt to create Adam, who breathed life into a fashioned rib to create Eve. Life is now going to be understood in the, in the metaphor of light. And you think, of course, light. Light makes sense to all people in all contexts, right? I mean, we have electricity and we have a lot of neat things of lighting things up and it's cool what we can all do, but we all get darkness and we all get light. And if we lived 261 years ago, we'd still understand it, right? We may not have neon and whatever else we have these days and, and so on, but we understand darkness and we understand light. It makes sense in this culture and it makes sense in every other culture, this idea of light and darkness. And so John wants to use this this powerful imagery even at Christmas, which is kind of interesting because, well, Matthew uses this imagery, right? Because there were magi in the east, and what did they see? Saw light. And, and, And they respond to the light in a sort of a curious way. They respond to the light by, we should go. We should go to the light, and, and so they follow the light, the star, that will ultimately lead them to Jerusalem, where they'll ask for instructions from the king of the Jews, as they're asking, well, where's the king of the Jews? They asked to Herod, who called himself the king of the Jews. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm right here, actually. Uh, no, 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 the new king of the Jews, the one that's just born, we've followed the, the light. The light is leading us to, and of course, Herod has no idea, and as it turns out, it ends up to be Bethlehem, not too far away, about seven miles or so, give or take. And, and so the Magi follow the light and ultimately catch up to worship the sun. So, so there's a lot going on with this language. And John wants us to understand when we read the details of Matthew, when we read the Christmas story in Luke, that, that here's kind of, let's not forget, he, he was here from the beginning, So yes, the incarnation is new, taking on human flesh is new. Yes, absolutely, that's new. But let's not forget, he spoke everything to an existence. As a matter of fact, there's nothing that exists that he didn't make exist. And and so John wants to make sure we we get the Christmas story, because you're talking about, literally, in a manger, the most powerful force to exist ever, you know, alive, however you'd want to say that, right? This is the one who, who spoke the wood and the rocks that the manger was made from. By the way, the manger was made out of rocks, not wood, but that's a different story. We'll talk about that some other time. Uh, uh, but, but nonetheless, there's no wood in, in Israel. You make everything. Uh, Joseph was a carpenter, meaning he was a stonemason. He would have worked from stone, right? Because there is no wood there. So we have wood, so we read wood into the text, and we make Joseph, you know, this woodworker, and Jesus is a woodworker. He wasn't a woodworker, he was a a stonemason. They made everything from stone. They didn't have wood. You remember what it takes? We're way off topic here, but you remember what it takes? You're going to build a city. You're going to put walls up, and then you need gates. How are you going to build your gates? What do you need to do to build gates in the city? Where do you need to go? 
cedars of Lebanon. Why? There's no wood in Israel, okay? So you can't be a carpenter, you'd be unemployed, so when you work, you work out of stone. It doesn't matter. Um, if you think Jesus was a woodworker and that's why you work with wood, I'm fine with that. I'm sure he can work with wood. Without him, nothing was made, right? So we're, we're good. Whether it's wood, whether it's stone, again, there's no, there's no wood in Israel, it's stone. Uh, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> Verse 5, so we have this life and we have this light. In him was the life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's curious, if you kind of think about what John is saying, he's describing sort of this, this, this celestial battle between good and evil, right? That it, it's, kind of, it's kind of like a glimpse, and we get in the beginning of Job, right? Where you have this conversation between God and Satan. This, the, the light shines in the darkness, kind of in the, in the evil, and the evil has not overcome it. It triumphs the evil. It's kind of this, this grand thing. That's what I'm saying. See, John 1 is giving us sort of the, the, the big theological picture looking from the top down rather than from the bottom up. Both are good. Both are important. It's not one over the other, but it's nice to have uh, things complemented this, uh, this way. Um, I, I want to remind you of some of the themes that John has that are going to be picked up later by Paul. So this idea, through him all things were made in, uh, uh, and without him nothing was made. Think of Paul, Colossians 1.16, a verse you probably know well. For in him, Paul writes to the church at Colossae, all things were created, things on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Okay, so when you're watching your TV show and they got this NASA program on and they're saying we developed this new telescope and we've seen farther than we've ever seen before and we're dumbfounded that we still see stars out there. What are those stars for? You go, huh, I know for him. Right. I mean, we may never have seen no one in history has ever seen that far. And we go way out there and we find there's still a star out there and it's beautiful and they get a picture of it. And so on. it's amazing. Like, why is it there? Oh, that's easy. It's for him. It was made by him, that is by the word, that is by Jesus, and it was made for him. They're his. So how many are there? Well, my guess is he's infinitely wonderful. There's an infinite amount, right? I mean, I don't know how many there are, but right? They're by him. They're made by him. They're made for him. I I would assume that a hundred years from now, if if the Lord tarries and we have stronger telescopes and so on, you know what we'll find? Even more. Right? Because that's, that's what we're seeing. It was made by him and for him. Think of the writer, Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to us, to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What does it mean when the Christmas story begins? It's the beginning of the end. These are the last days. Oh, you mean like Christ is coming today? Maybe. But what I mean is, when Jesus comes, when we read Matthew 1, when we read Luke 1 and Luke 2, that's the beginning of the end. The coming of Christ is the hinge point of history. It is the precipice of time. There is, if you're going to date things, like, why don't we come up with a system? Well, how about, like, before Christ, and then once Christ comes, the year of our Lord? Oh, yeah, that's the system we use, right? B.C. 
and AD. Oh, no, no, we're more secular. We use BC and BCE, before Common Era and Common Era. Huh, well, when do you change from before the Common Era to the Common Era? Well, the only thing we could come up with was when Christ was born. Okay, well, we'll use that then. Right? So it is, now notice the language. Hebrews chapter 1 In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken to us to His Son. When Jesus comes, that's it. In other words, there are lots of stories in the Old Testament, but the coming of Christ is the story. That is on which everything hinges. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. That complements what Paul said, right? Paul said everything was made by him and for him. And the writer of Hebrews says he is the inheritor of all things. They're all going to go to him. They're all going to ultimately fall into his possession and through whom he also made the universe, right? The writer of Hebrews is saying precisely what the writer, what, what, what John is saying in John chapter one, which is that God manufactured the universe through the work of Jesus, through the word of Jesus, through his word. The Son, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things. I wonder how he would sustain all things by his powerful word. Why are we here today? Well, because, you know, this force of gravity holds us down so we don't fall into space. No, 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 no. We're here because... He sustains us because he said so. And the day he says, no, we're not here. It's that simple. We are sustained by the word of God. We are created by the word of God. We are delivered by the word of God. We gain understanding by the word of God. We're sustained by the word of God. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through his powerful word. After he provided purification for our sins, what did he do? He delivered us. He died on the cross, purifying us from our sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty uh, of the majesty in heaven. And obviously the writer of Hebrews goes on. And so we see these themes that John is telling us being later developed by the writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, and and by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, that these are all things we need to appreciate as we understand the coming of the Christ and the ushering in of the end of time or the last days. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, so we can see here, uh, of course, this idea of, of light and dark that plays again back to Genesis one, right? What's the first thing that's created light, right? In the beginning was the light and, and the light covers the darkness and it penetrates the darkness. Uh, and so, uh, we see that. And so we see this idea of God as light, not merely in the Christmas story or in the Isaiah prophecies of the coming of Christ or even in the Genesis narrative. We see it a couple other places. I'll remind you of a couple here. Numbers 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter, that represents a king, a scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab and the skulls of the people of Sheth. 
It's a prophetic picture of something that is yet to come, and the vision is a star, a light. And and it's a kingly star. It's a kingly light that will ultimately defeat the enemies, Numbers 24. Isaiah chapter 9, the common one we read at Christmas, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, I just have a question for you, and you can just think about this on your own. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, is that referring to the decrepit state of Israel in the days of Isaiah? One of the wickedest times was during the prophetic period of Isaiah when Israel falls into idol worship to the place where they worship Molech and sacrifice their children to, to the god Molech. Is that talking about then, or is it just talking about today? Today, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. I mean, how different was it, or is it? I mean, was it dark then and not dark now? You know, you start to, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. A prophetic passage of Isaiah and the coming of Christ. That is, we're not in darkness, not we as believers. We live in dark days. We live in a culture that's full of evil. But it's not dark for us. Why? The light is dawned. The Savior has come. That's why we're worshiping. That's why we do Christmas. We don't do Christmas because it's on our calendar. We do Christmas because it's the light. It's the life. It's the hinge point of history. It's the precipice of time. John chapter uh, 1, going to verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now we have John introducing, this is not introducing himself, this is John the apostle writing, he's introducing John the baptizer, this is Jesus' cousin, this is the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth, born six months before Jesus, who is the way maker, prepare the way, make way, everyone get ready, the Lord is coming, the Messiah is here. Really important job, because they hadn't had a prophetic word for 400 years. So if you think about it this way, I mean, that's longer than the United States has been a a, a nation. And and so everyone's waiting for the word of the Lord. And then it comes to John to say, let them know, now's the time. You can imagine it's like, really? I mean, my parents never heard the word of the Lord. My grandparents never heard the word of the Lord. My great-grandparents loved the Lord and never heard the word of the Lord. My great-great-great-great-grandparents never heard the word of the Lord. And you're saying now's the time? That was John's job, to make way, let everyone know the Lord is coming. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness uh, to testify concerning that light, so that through him, that is through this light, all might believe. And so again, you notice we're playing with light. It could also read life, right? Because when you come to faith in Christ, you have new life. You see the light, you see the life. You you see that there's a, a play going on there. John is using light to illustrate life, which he started with back uh, just a few uh, verses earlier. He came as a witness. If I gave you the Greek word there in which John wrote, he came as a martyreo, where we get the word martyr from, which is kind of interesting because how does John the Baptist's life end? With a beheading. Yeah, he came as a martyreo, a witness, to bear witness, to testify concerning the light, so that through him, that is the light, all might believe. He himself was not the light. Let's not confuse this. John's not the light. 
he only came as a witness to the light. So that was John's role. So what we're getting is John is explaining Luke chapter 1 to us. Luke chapter 1 gives us the narrative of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John. Why? Why, John? Bear witness to the light. Ultimately, to be a martyr for the light. That, that ultimately, all people could be saved by the light. That's why John came. Verse 9. True light that gives light to everyone coming into the, uh, the, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light, not, not some kind of a false light, this true light, and it's going to light up for everyone. Well, what do you mean everyone? Well, John will explain this later. It would be ideal if we could just stay here for about 63 hours and, and, and just work all the way through John, because like John 3, 16, for God so loved, right? So, for God so loved... John 1 verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone. So for God so loves everyone, the world, that he gave his only son. So what John's going to do is he's going to introduce in John chapter 1 in our Bibles, verses 1 to 18, it's known as John's prologue. He's going to introduce things that essentially he's going to explain in the rest of his gospel. John chapter 3 verse 16 sits very nicely in John chapter 1 verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. So now we start to see why there's no room in the inn. No one knew we should have left room. I mean, who knew Mary and Joseph were coming? Burying the Christ child, we had no idea. We didn't even recognize him when he was born. The announcement went out to shepherds and then to people far away in the east who came sometime later, right? Jesus was already living in a house and maybe he was a year old or give or take. I don't exactly know how long. But, but he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own but his own didn't receive him. And so John wants to tell the Christmas story, the whole life of Christ. He introduces it by going all the way back to remember Jesus is the one who created all things. He was in there from the beginning. He was with God. He was God. He's fully God. He was the means by which God the Father creates all things. Nothing gets created throughout without him. He is, he is the word of God, literally. And so he created all things, and now he's going to go to his creation, which needs his help. And we're like, well, who's this guy? Well, we don't recognize him. I mean, by 30-some years into Jesus' life, the answer is going to be, I mean, we, we have crucify him. We don't need him. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? I mean, we're Pharisees. We're Sadducees. We're in control. We don't need him. They don't recognize. I mean, today, many don't recognize him. Through him, all things were made. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, God made them in his own image, male and female. He created them, Genesis 1. 26 and 27, there are people walking around today who can't figure out whether they're male or female. They don't realize that they were made in his image. He made them and they don't receive him. They don't recognize their, their maker. Okay? Why did Christ come? This is what we're really trying to get to. What, what, why did Christ come? What, what's Christmas all about? Verse 12. Yet, 
to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become God's children, children of God. That is, we are made in God's image, but in John's thinking, in John's uh, uh, revealing of God's word, we are not children of God until we believe in our very maker, in our very creator, ultimately through the life of Jesus, in our very redeemer, in our deliverer. Why Christmas? Simple. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become God's children. That's why Christmas. Jesus came to whoever would recognize him as the creator. How does John start? You got to know Jesus was there from the beginning creating. As a matter of fact, nothing got created without Jesus. Why Christmas? He came to those who would receive him. Many did not. Darkness in the world. But to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become God's children. That is, he gives us the same status he has with the Father. What's Jesus? God's Son. What am I if I believe? What are you if you believe? You are God's daughter, God's Son, right? Jesus came to give us his creation. He spoke us all into existence. His status. You can be God's son too. You can be God's daughter too. God's children. Children, verse 13, not born of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. John chapter 3, if we had time, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and Jesus will, will use that word born of God, and he'll use it in, in a slightly different way to try and explain a little more. Nicodemus, you need to be reborn. Reborn? Nicodemus, probably the smartest guy in Israel, right? He's Israel's teacher. He's one of the Pharisees. He's like, okay, so like uh, reborn back in the month. That's not going to work. Reborn. And, and then Jesus, ex- well, we can, it's only one page away. John uh, chapter 3, uh, verse um, 3, uh, Jesus says, John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus replied to Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom unless they are born again. Verse 5, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water, a reference to physical birth and spirit, two births. That is, being born of water, you're still born dead. That is, you're born spiritually dead. You're born spiritually bankrupt. You're born defying your maker, but you can be reborn of the spirit so that you believe and exult in your maker. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it, come from, where it comes from or where it's going. So is it with everyone who is born of the spirit. That, that is this, you, you, there is another way of having to be born. That's why Jesus came. So he came for his purpose is discussed probably more clearly in John. Where are the details? Well, the details are in Matthew and in Luke. So we read Matthew and Luke, and then we understand why Christmas. Now we understand why. He gave them the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 14, the word 
Well, you can't really see it, right? I mean, he spoke all things into existence. You can see what the word created, but you can't really... Oh, hold it. We got a solution here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelling, that's the idea of tent dwelling. That is a response or, or, or a, a, um, a look back towards the Old Testament when God dwelt among his people. Remember, his people are making their way from Egypt to who knows where, right? They're going to the promised land. They've never been there. They're not really sure where they're going. And so what does God do? He says, well, build me a tent and I'm going to live amongst you. And so not only does he describe the tent that needs to be built, but he says, here's how you're going to pitch your tent. Three tribes to the north of me, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. I tend in the middle. I want to live among you. Furthermore, when it's time to roll, I'm at the front. I'll show you which way to go, and I will lead you to the promised land. Literally, I will dwell among you. David gets the idea after all the wars that he fought, and he's finally built himself a great palace of cedar. Where we'd have gotten the cedar? Lebanon. Good. There's no wood in Israel. So David builds a palace. He goes, hold it. I mean, God's still in a tent. I'm in a palace. God, I'm going to build you a tent. And God goes, no, you're not going to build me a a, a palace. Excuse me. Um, I'll let your son build me a palace. That's fine. I'm going to build you a house. David's like, yeah, but like I got a house. No, no. Your house is going to be the house of David, which is going to reign eternally on the throne. Whoa. Okay. Okay, so David bequeaths all his wealth to Solomon, and Solomon builds God a house. Why does God need a house? Why does God need a temple? Why is there a temple in Jerusalem? Oh, so God can dwell among his people. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, I can't help but saying this any other way. This is just like God. It's exactly what God would do. He would make sure that he could be among his people. His people are sinful. His people reject him, even though he is their creator, and he comes to dwell among them. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, "Uh, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who's coming after me has surpassed me because he uh, was before me. There's John's prophetic message as he's saying, get ready. This guy who's coming later has already been here. Well, what do you mean? Oh, simple. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So Jesus has always been, created all things. Now he's coming, but he's always been, is John's message. Out of the fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who himself who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus comes in a manger so you can see what God looks like. Jesus dwells among us so you can see how Jesus handles the challenges of the day. And so we get this theological picture, this theological description kind of from the top down, of Matthew 1 and Luke 1 and 2, of the birth of Jesus. John explains, backing up, here's why. Here's what you got to need. Here's what you need to know. Again, verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And Father, we are grateful that that was your purpose and that we can be your children because we believe in your son, and we worship him at his birth celebration this Christmas. 
And Father, it seems that we need more of your Son uh, even this year than, than others, even though we always need your Son in light of the darkness that we live in. We thank you that Jesus is the light, your word is the deliverance, and your word always accomplishes its purposes. And so we submit ourselves to you in celebration of your Son this Christmas season, that you might shine to us and that you might shine through us, that our world would see Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.